back to One Hour in the Past. Adrian and I are so excited to get to this episode of our fun history podcast. Welcome to One Hour in the Past, everyone. The podcast series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator, and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous people for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We found ourselves pining for some interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. On this episode of One Hour in the Past, we're happy to welcome Laurie Mambella, Manager of Programs and Cultural Services at the City of St. Catharines. We are thrilled to have Laurie with us today. Today we are talking about crossed letters. A crossed letter is a manuscript letter which contains two separate sets of writing, one written over the other at right angles. This was done during the early days of the postal system in the 19th century to save on expensive postage charges as well to save paper. This technique is also called cross-hatching or cross-writing. So, here we go. Are you ready to head down the rabbit hole and see where one hour in the past has taken us? Welcome to One Hour in the Past. Today we are talking with Lori Mambella, who is the Manager of Programs and Cultural Services for the City of St. Catharines, and she is joining me to talk about crossed letters. Hey, Lori. Hi, Kathleen. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for being here. Uh, so we're going to start the podcast, as usual, with a bit of a definition of the topic that we're going to be looking at. A crossed letter is a manuscript letter which contains two separate sets of writing, one written over the other at right angles. Sometimes it can also be called cross-hatching or cross-writing. Okay, so, Lori, since you're uh, new to our uh, podcast, I'll go over kind of what the, the drill is normally, So, and for our people who are listening out there. Lori and I both had one hour to go off and do our own research and find out what we can about the topic and what uh, crazy uh, direction our research took us, and now we're going to share it. Normally, Lori, we start with, where did you start and where did you end, just like Give us a little quick where you started and where you ended, and then we can go into what we uh, we talked about. So, first, so do you want me to start, or do you want to go first? I don't mind starting. Okay, so where did you start? Well, I hope this isn't considered cheating, but I actually started with Google. Excellent. That's so, <laughs> usually what I do as well. <laughs> so, I wanted to have a, a more fulsome understanding of the definition of what cross-writing was, so I went to Wikipedia they didn't have a ton of information, but there were some reference websites, so I checked those out. Um, I found some images online, which really helped to illustrate yeah. what it is, uh, the cross-hatching, the cross-writing. I don't think I would have understood it unless I saw the pictures or the images. We'll also add some uh, images to, our, uh, pod to the blog part of our podcast so that people can take a look at that. So that's where I started, and I just went through the research and the information that's available that I could find. But where I ended up was actually quite interesting. I ended up on a book website uh, where they sell uh, 
artifacts and uh, historical books, and they actually had six examples of Victorian cross-writing on different sizes of sheets of paper, and they're quite valuable. I, I, I'm thinking that these cross-hatching uh, samples that have survived history are, are quite valuable because they were on the market. They were selling for over $460 US. Wow, that's crazy. So that's where I stopped because I, I really see that there's an appreciation here. And, uh, of course, it led to a couple of other things that, you know, we'll probably talk about later. Yeah, that's cool. So I started with the same place you did, basically. I started out because I wanted to get the definition for this, so I went to Wikipedia with you. Same with probably the exact same page you were on uh, that had the definition of cross-writing. But on that page, there was a little small reference to something called a palimpsest. And I got totally interested and obsessed with this palimpsest, which I will come back to a little later, but that's kind of where I started, actually. I didn't even start my research with cross-writing. I got totally on the tangent right away. Um, and then I ended, my research ended with the history of postage in Canada. And uh, when, can, when Canada ended up with its own postage system and when it had uh, British systems still. And so that's kind of the, the place that I ended up in my uh, one hour of research. It was cool, though. There was some really interesting information. Um, I thought the cross-writing was super cool. Uh, and you'll see, we'll talk about it later, but I actually made my own cross-letter, <laughs> which we'll add a picture of to the, uh, the blog so that people can see what my version of cross-writing looks like. So, yeah, that's where I ended up. So let's talk about it then. Let's get right into it and hear uh, where the research took you. Uh, so you said you started out with uh, Wikipedia and a definition. And then, so where did you go from there? Well, I did have an opportunity to visit a couple of blogs. And it was really interesting because the conversation shifted from a historical perspective to how this type of writing would be received in today's generation. Yeah. So there are some incredible examples of fantastic cursive writing. And as we all know, cursive writing is not very popular in the education system They don't now. even teach it, I don't think, anymore. No, not, not all schools do. So it's sort of a lost art. Yep. And it talked about, you know, just the sentence formation uh, nowadays, of course, a lot of our communication in modern society is through text messaging and we have emojis and we have uh, short forms, acronyms, <laughs> LOLs and all this. But when you look at the detail and the sentence structure and the care and the time that went into creating these letters that yeah. were sent was really awesome. And the other thing that really resonated with me kind of overall is that Necessity is the mother of invention. And in this case, they had one piece of paper and they were able to write a, a, a large letter and then fold that one piece of paper in a way that it became an envelope and then have the stamp and the address because, again, uh, the postage and the paper were, postage was expensive and paper was in short supply. I actually found a reference that there was one example where they even recrossed. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that means like after writing in the cross style, then they'd turn the whole page another 45 degree angle and they would cross right over it again. I saw that one and it was 
impossible to read. I don't know how anyone would read that one. It said that they could fit six pages of writing onto one sheet of paper. And I just find that so frugal uh, (laughs) and so incredibly uh, ingenious. Uh, I did question, you know, how how easy would it be to read a letter like that if you received it? Like, I wouldn't know where necessarily to start. I don't know if you start in the top yeah, left-hand yeah. corner and go. It's almost like a code. I felt like it was like, after a while, it was almost like an affectation. So, you know, like teenage girls would will send... Well, they used to back in my day send secret messages between uh, friends with like a little bit of secret code or your secret language or whatever. This became almost like that, where you could yeah. send a message where it was more difficult for other people to read it easily. Well, there was conflicting opinions in the research that I saw because one website indicated that once you became familiar with it, that it actually you would adjust and you would learn to ignore the other letters yeah. that were behind and that actually it wasn't that difficult. But then another website suggested the reason that we don't have this type of cross-writing anymore (laughs) is because it was very difficult to decipher. And if the paper got damaged or became wet, or if the paper was too thin, that it compromised the legibility. Or if your handwriting was really bad. I I would say so, too. And then, you know, we got into that era of, you know, typewriters, and that sort of was the end of the penmanship era. Very true. So this is my version Um, of the crossed writing. So I'll let you look at it, see if you can read what it says. It's actually a famous letter from Canadian history that was written uh, by uh, General Montcalm at the end of the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. And it's just a short letter, so I thought I would find something that was historic. But see if you can read this letter. And I tried to be as neat as possible and give it as much space as possible. (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll try this. It's going to adjust my glasses. <laughs> Sir, being, oblige, being obliged to surrender Quebec to your arms, I have the honor to recommend our sick and wounded to your excellency's compassion and to ask you to carry out the exchange of prisoners as agreed, something between his most Christian majesty and his Britannic majesty. Okay, now I'm turning the page and reading it another way. I beg your excellency to reassured of the high esteem and great respect with which I have the honor to be your most humble and obedient servant, Montcalm. But I think, Kathy, the way you've done this, a little strategic in the spacing so that some of the words don't necessarily have to overlap. So I think you... Makes it a little easier to read. You've made it a little easier if they're not a lot of direct uh, on top of each other letters. So it's... it's, uh, And I also made sure that there was a piece of lined paper underneath my white paper so that the lines were straight. And I don't know if that's what they did in the 19th century, but I found that if I had tried to write it, you know, like you start writing and it's going down and down and down, that it might have ended up really hard to read if it was off kilter. Yeah. I'm wondering, too, like when they used pen and ink or fountain pens, would you have to wait till it dried before you could do the cross Yeah, I would think so. Or you'd have to, like, blot it. You know, you'd <laughs> blot it with another piece of paper. Um, and they sometimes use powder to dry the ink. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yes, I would think so. And it was even like if you were using a a Sharpie pen or something like that, you might have the same problem if you, if it was still, uh, still wet when you go to write the second direction. 
but I was surprised. It was a little easier to read than I was expecting. I don't have the best handwriting in the world, so it also that doesn't help. <laughs> As a kind of an aside to this whole thing, it just happens that last week I happened to be listening to another podcast about handwriting. And apparently at different time periods in history, there were different types of handwriting for different types of people. So people who worked as secretaries, there was actually a secretary handwriting. This was like, you know, 18th, 17th, 16th century, so long ways away. But uh, their handwriting was very distinctive. The, the cursive type lettering was very distinctive. So if you could read secretary handwriting and the person who wrote it wrote it very neatly, it would be easy to read. Assumedly, secretary, because of the nature of the job, would be easy enough to read. But that would be different from um, an official hand that was written maybe by, you know, these scribes that wrote the Bible. Different type of, the cursive looked different, and the language was even different. So the type of handwriting that used could have been, could have affected whether or not it was legible as well. I didn't find it in my research, Kathy, but did you come across this type of cross-writing in any other languages? No, I didn't. Uh, I di well, no, not really. The other thing that my tangent ended up on, this palimpsest, did have other languages. But oh, uh, um, cro the cross-writing, I didn't see it anywhere. So so where else did, you, uh, did your travels take you? Well, again, it kind of got into penmanship. Uh, it got into fancy script lettering, it started to kind of veer away from what the main topic was, but uh, it did talk about uh, a lot of the famous writers where there exist examples of cross-hatching, and Henry James, Jane Austen, and I was surprised, Charles Darwin. Like <laughs> well, that, they would all that, be contemporary. That's kind of like, <laughs> I'm surprised. But, it, but that was kind of cool. Jane Austen, I did come across the comments about Jane Austen and that she was she was potentially not a fan of cross-writing. Uh, and in her uh, novel, Emma, she talks kind of derogatory way about cross-writing. Uh, she uses this comedic character in the novel, Miss, um, what's her name, Miss Bates, and uh, um, talks about whether or not Miss Bates is going to be able to decipher Jane Fairfax's letter about because uh, it's written in cross writing. And so that was people imply that Jane Austen wasn't a big fan of it because that's what she wrote. I also came across another person who was not a big fan, which was Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. He wrote a novel, uh, an essay, sorry, about letter writing kind of his own little diatribe. It's like his little soapbox about essay writing. <laughs> and uh, it was a bunch of rules. And rule number nine was actually related to cross-writing. He wrote this in 1890. And uh, he wrote a little poem, and the poem was this. This is what he says about cross-writing. My ninth rule. When you get to the end of a note sheet and find you have more to say, take another piece of paper, a whole sheet, or a scrap, as the case may demand, but whatever you do, don't cross. Remember the old proverb, cross-writing makes cross-reading. And then it says, the old proverb, you say inquiringly, how old? Well, not so very ancient, I must confess. In fact, I'm afraid I invented it while writing this paragraph. So he basically made up his own proverb to, uh, to go with, because uh, he hated cross-writing so much. But anyway, so that's Lewis Carroll. I think it was a, you know, love-hate relationship with that kind of uh, penmanship 
using doing the cross writing. So what else did you find out? Um, I just was, um, I was surprised that the cost of postage was such a financial burden for so many people that lived in that time. And it was suggested in the research that that's the reason that this cross-writing evolved is because there was a shortage of paper and there was also, um, you know, expensive costs for postage. I totally agree with you because I came across like this conflicting information about whether or not this was actually a burden financially or not a burden financially or if some people started you know it may have started out that it was a burden because it really was when someone sent you a letter if the letter was too big you had to pay for it at the door and it's like now you know how nobody ever carries cash and if someone wanted you to all of a sudden give them cash at the door for your letter you'd be like I got nothing I think that's a really good point because it became very clear to me in the research that the postal charges really inflated during the Napoleonic Wars and that all letters that were sent by post were COD. Yeah. So it explains perhaps why even the aristocrats may have still wanted to condense the amount or the size of the letter because whoever they were sending it to ended up with the burden of having to pay for it. Yep. So... Obviously, that's a lot different than the way our postal system works today, but it definitely must have influenced the creation of this mode of Yeah, it definitely did. And in Canada, we had the British uh, postal system until 1851. So we were using that same system where, theoretically, when a letter came to you, you had to pay for it based on the number of pages and how far it had to travel in the country. And then in 1851, this is like the last little bit of my research. In 1851 is when the first penny postage came into Canada. And so uh, the first penny stamp came, and then you just put the stamp on the letter, and it went wherever it needed to go for one penny. Across the whole country? Yep. That's really cool. It's just like now, like what does it cost now, like a dollar or something Mm -hmm. like that? I don't even know. To send a letter. Uh, Isn't that terrible that I don't know how much it costs to send a letter in Canada right now? But anyway, you can send a letter to anywhere in Canada for that price uh, based on bulk bulk Mm -hmm. mailing. Uh, An interesting side bit of trivia related to the first penny stamp in Canada is that the first penny postage stamp was designed by Sir Sanford Fleming. You know who Sir Sanford Fleming is? Yes, I've heard of him. I can't give you an extensive biography, but yes. He's the guy that uh, came up with um, Standard Time and all the time zones in Canada. And he was a railway guy and help to engineer the railways across the country. So he also designed the stamp. He was like the Renaissance man, designed the stamps, coming up with railways, standard time. Good guy. So my final thought, really, on on this whole subject, when I was looking at some of the images, if you look at them closely, you're looking at the words and the scriptive um, uh, writing. But when you look at it from afar... It's rather beautiful, and this might sound really crazy, but I think this would make beautiful wallpaper. Yeah, it would. You're right. This pattern, this design, is it's so authentic, and I, I know that's kind of really out of the realm of research, <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's really beautiful, and I think it, it it's does look worthy super cool. of uh, yeah. you know some design elements, and I can see it in a million dollar home. But I think that handwriting is very artistic and. Mm-hmm. Um, 
could make great design elements anyway. It's a shame that handwriting is starting to become a lost art, but old handwriting, I think, has a lot of real artistic merit to it. And then on top of that, add that letter that looks old, you know, and you know, great sentiment to the letter, hopefully. It'd be a drag to just come up with someone's shopping list of, you know, cross-written shopping lists. That's not so exciting for wallpaper, I guess. <laughs> So there you go. So that's your research. Mine took me in a little bit of a different direction. Um, so as uh, you heard, I uh, got totally distracted right at the start today because I got distracted by palimpsest, which was also on the definition page of crossed letters. And I didn't had ever heard of this word before. I didn't know what it was. Had you ever come across this word before? No, actually, I did see it in the Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, page, but no, I don't know what it means. So it is a manuscript page where the writing that was on it was wiped off or scraped off. Most of the time they were done on parchment, uh, and parchment is paper that's made from animal skin. Mm -hmm. And because it was so valuable, this is before the invention of paper made out of rags or made out of uh, pulp, uh, wood pulp, um, in order to reuse a piece of parchment, you had to erase what was on it. So, so like reusable paper. Basically. But recyclable paper. it's on skin, and they've written on ink. So they would use, actually use um, milk and oat bran. So like, you know, uh, the leavings after you've ground flour, the, the bits that are left over, oat bran and milk mixed together kind of make a little bit of an abrasive... Mm -hmm. Uh, paste that they would use to uh, to wipe off the parchment and then they would rewrite on it and usually when they rewrote on it they actually wrote sideways just like these cross letters so oh the interesting thing i found about this was that I get it. the ink that they erased off of it lots of times had was not able to be totally erased it's almost like when you see people go and get their tattoos lasered off and there's still a little bit of uh stuff that's residual <laughs> i know that's a weird connection but uh, this is the same kind of thing so there was still residual ink and it would start to bleed back out and so you would actually be able to see the underlying writing on these palimpsest manuscripts and then you could theoretically read them most of the time, these were like almost like scrap bits of parchment that were laying around that someone wanted to write something important onto. So they would take it. Oh, this is just like a letter from, uh, you know, a provincial dignitary that doesn't matter. It's not important at all. Take it, erase it, and then write, you know, the uh, book of the Bible onto it. <laughs> and so... So th this happened a lot, and this happened a long time ago. So that we're not talking about the 19th century when most of these cross letters are. A lot of these were like from the 5th and 6th century, but continued into like the 10th century, 12th century, uh, until they really started using paper more often. But this is kind of related to when manuscripts were all written on vellum or parchment. I know um, that's a lot longer, like a long time ago, but it still seems very like 007 James Bond kind of disappearing ink. It is, if you totally. took that yep. parchment and you maybe if you wet it or you held it to the sun or something, you could see invisible yep. lettering underneath the letter that would be on top, which is kind of like 
Yeah, and they're hard to read. The lettering underneath was hard to read. So the, the interesting thing about it is that uh, modern scholars have to, it's like James Bond, you're right, because modern scholars use ultraviolet light or x-rays or they take a photo of it and they change the contrast of the photo so that you can see the lighter over the darker. Um, and so it is really difficult to read. Interestingly, a lot of ancient documents from the past only, a, only survive because they're palimpsests. Mm -hmm. So those documents would have been lost because someone erased over them anyway, but they survive because these scholars who are really interested in these documents have found this secret writing that's um, below the surface. So it's I thought that was like pretty cool. It's like encrypted messages it is, underneath kind of. the message yeah, yeah, on top. Yeah. That's really interesting. So these were like before, um, what ended up happening was they would reuse old documents, um, but it became a big problem for the church and in 691, uh, a decree by the church, which is called a synodal decree, uh, for, forbade the destruction of manuscripts of the scriptures or church fathers, except for, for volumes that were badly damaged. So they, there were people that were actually taking some of the original scriptures that were written like, you know, a hundred or 200 years after the actions that they're writing about, and they would write like, some other document on top of them. So they'd wow. be erasing what today we'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe you've written over top of this. They erased history. Literally, <laughs> they erased history. <laughs> yeah. How, what were they thinking? <laughs> so um, because of this, this uh, decree, a lot of secular type documents, so just like, you know, every organization creates tons of documents. A lot of those secular documents were actually used for these palimpsest uh documents. Eventually paper was introduced and um, that kind of killed the trade for vellum. And so because paper came along and vellum makers didn't have any more business, they started making less parchment and vellum. And so that actually made it more, they would create more of these palimpsests because there wasn't as much parchment or vellum. Um, most uh, a lot of uh, um, documents that are really important were still written on vellum and parchment up until the modern day. Um, most land deeds were written on that. If you see, if you've ever seen some of these giant land deeds with this huge seal attached to them, they're usually written on parchment or vellum. Um, we have a bunch in the collection here at the museum that are written on that. It looks like paper. It just looks like really thick paper. You wouldn't necessarily know. Would it be similar to the parchment paper that we use in cooking today? Kind of, but thicker. But thicker. So yeah, it would yeah. be sort of heat resistant, yep. you know, water resistant. So, you know, it would be a more durable. Yeah, that's exactly substance. why they did it, because it was a durable <laughs> substance. Um, so, interestingly, one of the most famous of these palimpsests was a bunch of documents that were discovered that belonged to Archimedes. And Archimedes is the, people consider him the father of modern mathematics. And uh, in the third century BC, he wrote a bunch of treaties on mathematics that, you know, some of them are still uh, relevant today. And this palimpsest that relates to his works, which were completely lost until they found this document where were written in 900 AD. So they were like, you know, a thousand years ago, essentially. Um, and uh, they were discovered. They're like, there's 
pages and pages and pages of them and they were discovered and someone had them it was like someone had them in their basement they got kind of moldy because he was hiding them in his basement and uh eventually they ended up on the market and they were sold uh for a couple million dollars i think it said they were sold for um you might uh, you know i don't know if you have it here but anyway um in the meantime not all, it has this weird history so palimpsest is really like you know erased information so there's something more modern on top of that document and then even on top of that modern more modern document a forger created an illum illuminated document on top of that to hide the fact that they had this original document <laughs> and so it's like three or four layers of um, of documents on top of each other uh, and some of Archimedes work was destroyed by the uh, the forgers uh, the forgers thing so I thought that was super interesting uh, and then I was of course getting to the point where I only had a few minutes left to research what we were supposed to be researching so I had to get <laughs> off of that tangent uh, but before I did I wanted to make sure I understood the idea of a manuscript because these all talk about being manuscripts and in the definition earlier on a cross letter is considered a manuscript as well and in modern day we don't use manuscript in the same way necessarily as they would have um, back in the 19th century or prior to really prior to modern printing um, because a manuscript is anything that's written by hand so man manu would mean hand um, so a manuscript is a handwritten letter handwritten documents but it can also be considered typewritten documents are also considered manuscripts if it's written on a typewriter so if you physically took your hands and typed it in um, as long as it's not mechanically reproduced so once you've created that document if you take it to a printer and have the printer make a thousand copies those are not the manuscripts it's just the original one that was written by hand that's the manuscript so I thought that was super interesting and then where? Where did I go from there? I um, went to, um, did some research, which we already talked about a little bit, about why people used cross letters. Because I was kind of getting um, not so, I was off topic a little bit, but I was kind of off in that, is this an English tradition or is this a Canadian tradition or is it an American tradition? So we tend to lots of times, you know, bulk history together in different kinds of traditions. Um, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up and I think that's the best example. Um, pilgrims are always a, a Thanksgiving kind of icon. Well, we didn't actually have pilgrims here in Canada, but you see that iconography all the time. So I thought about that related to crossed lettering and whether we actually had crossed let a lot of cross lettering in Canada. And it's hard to tell that from doing the research. It a lot of it is it, English. It wasn't very clear to me either where yeah. it originated, but because the only way to send communication across the ocean in that period was letters, there was such a wide distribution yeah that it's hard to know exactly who started it. Yeah, and it seems like it was definitely popular in Europe, and it seemed to be as well in the United States, um, but whether or not it was popular from coming from Canada going in other directions is really a, a question that I actually didn't find an answer to, but uh, it did seem to that cross-writing remained popular even after the price of, of uh, sending a letter came down. Um, and to me, when I was reading that particular bit of information it kind of reminded me of you know when you back in back in the day in high school when you used to write letters to your friends that uh, 
at different times, I don't know if you had this experience, Lori, but at different times, it seemed like certain kind of writing was super popular. So I don't know if you remember in the 80s, it was really popular to make little hearts on your eyes or, to, you know, to have like this little kind of uh, flourish on letters that have a, a hanging down bit like G or J or whatever. And then that was not popular for a while. So uh, so it reminded me of that, that just maybe cross hatching was just a popular thing for a while with a certain audience of letter writers. Uh, and then eventually it just went out of style. So anyway, um, and then <laughs> related to that, I came across a, a song that was referenced in a, another uh, blog about um, handwriting and how handwriting is no longer popular or was no longer popular. And this, this song called Everything Old is New Again by Peter Allen. Uh, the lyrics have, don't throw the past away. You might need it some other rainy day and uh apparently uh cursive writing is making a little bit of a comeback in certain circles kind of like uh people are like liking to buy records again and so maybe cross hatching will come and be popular if people start writing letters again i don't know about whether letter writing will become popular what do you think i i have my doubts for a couple of reasons because uh, it's not second nature to the younger generations that are growing up. It's they true. are keypad savvy. They don't know how to hold a pen. We all had the bumps yes. on our middle finger because <laughs> we grew up holding a pen or a pencil. And after, you know, six hours at school, you'd have this big indent that stayed with you for years and years and years. Those The kids today don't have that. But I think the other thing um, is that we as a society are are more... Um, in tune with the needs of the accessibility co community. Yeah. So anyone who has low vision, I'm told that cursive writing can be a little bit more difficult to decipher, and this cross-writing would not be considered oh, accessible. I can't even imagine. I mean, I had to adjust my reading glasses just to start <laughs> this process and to even look at the samples and what Kathleen wrote for me. But, you know, I, I just can't see it making a resurgence for a couple of reasons around, you know, society has shifted. And, uh, you know, we're trying to become a paperless society. It's true. We're moving to a digital communication world. So I think it's really cool. This was an, a super interesting topic, but I don't see it coming back anytime soon. It's too bad because can you imagine uh, having to read in 100 years as a historian, reading uh, emails, love emails between people rather than love letters which were so interesting or you know emails from the front rather than postcards or letters from soldiers and their their spouses or their kids uh it'll it's not going to be the same it'll be different which is great for historians but uh it'll just be a different experience so sometimes i'm it's too bad that it's gonna it's gone kind of going kind of the way of fashion but uh yeah, I agree with you. Very few people even send Christmas cards or birthday cards anymore. There's a lot of digital cards. And, and I think we've accepted as the norm that if you get yep. an email or a Facebook post on your birthday, that that's just <laughs> as good. We're all happy with that. So as long as we're content in the way that we're doing things now, I, I don't see us going back to... And, and I actually did buy a card not long ago for a special occasion and I was blown away by how expensive it yes, was. Yes, that's very true. Uh, a We're really like the opposite nice, now. <laughs> yeah, really nice a decorative card for a special occasion. A single card was almost seven dollars. Yeah, and you know, add the postage. It's some a little bit more efficient now to do it digitally. So, it's true. 
Well, there you go. So we went in a lot of different directions with uh, with this particular research. Uh, I think it was really, really interesting, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed uh, participating in our uh, podcast, Lori, and I appreciate you very much uh, taking part and uh, being with me today. Thank you very much, Kathleen. I really enjoyed this opportunity to spend some time with you and to do this research, and I'll be sure to send you a handwritten thank you card next week. <laughs> Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. And thanks to Lori Mambella for joining me on this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catharines Museum or on Twitter and Instagram at STC Museum. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Royal Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.